Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 Welcome to Tell Me the Story with Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us for a weekly study of the Bible as we read verse by verse with the original context and languages at the forefront, illuminating the stories at hand. Virtually all great literature begins with a thesis, and then that thesis is explicated in a series of examples, and then it restates that thesis at the end of the story. Joseph is the restatement. He is the result of the series of Toledotes compartmentalizing the book of Genesis into a cohesive whole. He is the grand example of the scriptural Obed-Yahu, the perfect slave of the Lord. In accordance with this, he makes peace with his enemies, not fearing evil done to him, but taking that risk in the trust that the God of his forefathers will protect him and those around him. As a result, his enemies are blessed because of his faith. But there is a caveat. Genesis is not the end of the story, but only the beginning. Even though Joseph is perfect, this begins to falter, and his children will be the exact opposite, and God's acts of mercy will be forgotten by them. We have hardly even reached the very tip of this scriptural iceberg, so let us continue hearing the story. So the first 36 verses of chapter 41 are very self-explanatory, and there isn't a whole lot to comment on that isn't explained by Joseph and the dream interpretation. Joseph does all the work for us. So because of that, I feel it would be better for Rowdy and I uh, to just read the long section so you hear it. But there's no need to explain every single verse when it is clearly explained by the scripture itself. So for this first section of the episode, Rowdy and I are just going to let the scripture speak on its own terms. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, 
I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing up on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephenat Benaiah, and he gave him in marriage Asenat, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, so Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. All right. So Pharaoh is impressed with Joseph's interpretation of his dream and decides to use him as an asset. Verse 38 is interesting because Pharaoh is recognizing that Joseph has the Ruach Elohim in him. What does this mean? Well, our impulse is to view the phrase Spirit of God as something mystical or to instantly jump to the classical Christian conception of the person of the Holy Spirit. 
But that's not really how it works in the original Hebrew. Ruach just means wind, and by extension, the breath when it is inhaled and exhaled. The Ruach of God describes an action, or perhaps an activator. Think of the kind of action wind has. Midwesterners like Rowdy and I are all too familiar with this. The wind can be an incredibly destructive force, and it compels movement. Well, God's Ruach is precisely a very practical and real activity. When Pharaoh says that Joseph has the Spirit of God, he is saying that what Joseph says, God will do. The seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine are brought on by the Ruach of God as a divine agent. This is what Pharaoh is recognizing. That is why Joseph is such an asset to him. And having been raised from the prison, Joseph is once again given royal honors, this time by the Pharaoh. It's interesting that due to the Israelites' rejection of Joseph, the blessings surrounding Joseph are now being given to the Egyptians. In other words, as we know from the story, the land of Canaan will experience a famine, but will not have the resources to feed themselves. They are without God's blessing through Joseph. But the Egyptians accept God's blessings through Joseph and will be well equipped to survive the coming famine because they listened to the warning given by God via the dream. It's also important to pay attention to Joseph's characterization throughout these different situations. His first dreamings led to him being ostracized by his family, and he simply goes with the flow, as it were. Then he ends up bringing success to his new master's house after he's sold into slavery, but then he is ostracized due to the misfortune he befalls at the hand of his master's lustful wife. But Joseph, again, just goes with the flow. Then he interprets dreams in prison, not for his own benefit like a magician working for coin, but because he is obedient to God and God has given him this kind of insight. The official who benefits from Joseph's interpretations forgets about Joseph, likely because he was returned to his state of comfort and cushioned living, which in a way foreshadows Joseph. Then, in verse 9, the chief cupbearer says, I remember my sin, meaning he remembers his own negligence regarding Joseph, who asked him to put in a good word so that he may be released from his unjust prison sentence. So, the cupbearer tells Pharaoh of Joseph. Then when Joseph comes before Pharaoh to interpret his dreams, he once again just goes with the flow and simply deals with honesty and speaks the truth of what he has understood the dreams to mean because of God's agency. Again, notice how Joseph acts the same in every circumstance. When he is a prisoner, he is obedient to God. When he is being sold into slavery, he is obedient to God. When he is appointed a position in Pharaoh's kingdom, he is obedient to God. His circumstances and his sufferings seem to play no role in his behavior. Only his obedience to God dictates his behavior. Also, the renaming of Joseph by Pharaoh is fascinating as well. There are many many interpretations of this name, and biblical scholars are in disagreement whether it is based on Egyptian words or Hebrew ones. Whichever avenue we take, we will get different answers. I think it is possible, though, that there is a clever wordplay going on here, which plays with the Hebrew language so that the meaning is intelligible to the original Semitic audience while still playing with the Egyptian language to the point where it would present a double meaning in the mind of, the, of an educated person who is familiar with both languages. The best way I can describe this that comes to mind is the existence of false cognates. In Spanish, the word embarazada does not mean embarrassed as one would think it means, but it means pregnant. 
So say for a hypothetical example, there was a story about an embarrassed pregnant woman named Embarazada. The English speaker would be able to hear the connection with the similar cognate word, but an, an English speaker who was also familiar with Spanish would pick up on the double meaning. That is possibly what's going on here. I will attempt to break down these words, but uh, without going into too much unnecessary detail. Uh, I'd recommend you write it down as I say it, and remember that ultimately this is just speculative. I'm not arrogant enough to think that I have the definite answer here. These are just the ones that I find the most uh, convincing contextually. So speaking of the Egyptian one first, the common gloss is that it refers to a savior of the world. This is consistent with the story because Egypt's salvation from the famine is due to Joseph's correct, divinely inspired interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams. This corresponds to the Egyptian slash Coptic language. So please forgive my mispronunciation because I'm not really familiar with how to pronounce this, but the phrase Psaltim Fene, which corresponds to the Hebrew Zafnat Pene, means savior of the age. In the Septuagint, the corresponding transliterations are a little bit more obvious. It is for this reason, probably, that Jerome opts to translate Zephanat Penea to Salvatore Mundi in the Latin Vulgate. Jerome would no doubt have had at least a cursory knowledge of Coptic, as it was the colloquial language of the Egyptians before the area was Arabicized, uh, with the Copts being a major Christian community at the time. So as far as the Hebrew goes, though, it gets even more interesting. Again, there are many avenues to go down, and I don't want to derail into a major rabbit hole. Uh, I do think it's important, though, to at least attempt to uncover the meaning of this name. For one, I will be relying on Dr. Iskander Abushar in his book on Isaiah. In discussing Zafanath Panea, he notes that the first part of the name makes up the Hebrew word for north, which is Zafon. Uh, the second part is to be constructed from a composite of two words, pa'a, meaning to groan or cry, and nua, of course, being rest. So the overall meaning glean here would be, from the north came a cry of travail for release to rest, something like that. It makes sense contextually, as on the one hand, Joseph is from the north, and he will become synonymous with the northern kingdom through his two sons, who we will also meet in this chapter. The rest of it reflects Isaiah 41:45 and 42:14, uh, both of which use those words which make up Zaphanat Panea. It's an interesting answer, but I think it makes sense. It's a bit clunky in Hebrew, but I think that's because the original name is Coptic in origin, but that name was chosen specifically because it plays with the Hebrew, which sounds something like someone coming from the north and calming a cry of pain to rest and release. There's something paschal about it too, which if this is the case, it's brilliant foreshadowing of the Exodus. There are some other ideas too, which I would encourage curious listeners to investigate, but these are the best that I could find and the most interesting, I think. Uh, next we hear that he gets married to Asenat, the daughter of Patifera, the priest of On. This is interesting as Asenat means the harmful ones in the feminine plural, as it comes from the Hebrew word Ason, meaning harm. Patifera in Egyptian means Ra has brought, 
which is virtually identical to Potiphar, but there's an extra ayin at the end of the word. In all honesty, I'm not sure what this signifies, but I think it's interesting how this name is used again, but in a different way. Perhaps it's nudging the hearers to hear the Hebrew word ra'ah in the name, which connotes something evil and is also tied to shepherdism. We already discussed that with Potiphar, but the fact that the ayin is present signifies that it is heard that way. Him marrying the daughter of a priest signifies a very high position, but it's not surprising in relation to what we've already heard, but it certainly solidifies it. But with that ominous tone, with Potiphar being the priest of the deity Ra, it signifies a break with the service of Joseph's God and the serving of evil, Ra'a, instead by his descendants. It's really clever, and I think we should be bracing for some bad news with this information. So continuing on in the text, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of those seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. Then Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. In verse 49, the author makes an interesting choice to mention the grain Joseph stored uh, was like the sand of the sea. This terminology is used to describe the abundant spreading of God's Torah to an innumerable group of people. The descendants of the patriarchs will be innumerable as the sand of the sea, right? That's what it says over and over again. The author didn't have to use this exact verbiage, so the fact that he did unquestionably connects this multiplication of the grain in Egypt to the blessing of the outside nations with God's teaching. Right, and if I can just repeat what you said in a slightly different way, what is grain if not seed? The grain of a plant, if it were not to be eaten would be the seed that sprouts a new plant, or at the least, the housing and delivery mechanism of the seed. So the grain being stored up here is a symbol of the true function of the Toledots of Genesis, to preserve and spread the seed. So it makes sense that here we have our most scripturally sufficient character thus far, whose salvific action is nothing more than the accumulation of life-saving grain, i.e. the teachings of God, not too dissimilar from Christ, who was himself the bread, which is nothing more than a combination of grain and water. Do you see the imagery? The biblical authors were brilliant in their use of these metaphors. It is all much more connected than we typically think. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenat, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So about the names of the two sons, uh, the first one, of course, is named Manasseh, which means to forget. This is where Joseph's pristine image begins to crack a little bit. Progeny in Egypt has caused him to forget the scriptural story, and in turn, his son Manasseh is marked by this forgetfulness. This is expounded later on in the biblical story where Manasseh and Ephraim are shorthand for the harlotry of the northern kingdom of Israel. They are characterized by forgetting the scriptural God and by extension the Toledot of their ancestors. 
Likewise, Ephraim means fruitful in Hebrew. But this fruitfulness quickly comes to an end with the end of the seven years of plenty. Why? Because, as will later be expounded by the biblical story, the sons of Joseph forgot God who blessed their forefathers in Egypt. This is also solidified in the beginning of the book of Exodus when we hear of a pharaoh who will rise to power in Egypt who did not know Joseph. In other words, the blessings and the fruit of Joseph's labor through God to the land of Egypt comes to an end because both the Egyptians and the Israelites alike forgot the God who blessed them in the first place. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread all over the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Compounding what we said earlier, the fidelity of Joseph to his God has blessed his enemies in the land of Egypt. The Egyptians are fed bread because of it. This pharaoh even humbles himself and even tells his subjects to turn to Joseph for food. This is astounding because pharaoh is acknowledging an authority greater than himself, which is radically uncharacteristic of an Egyptian king who was basically the face of divinity for the Egyptians. But it is difficult to rejoice in this too much because we are just slapped in the face by the authors who already told us that even this blessing will come to an end because this miraculous act of God's mercy will be forgotten by all parties involved. Right, and that first mark of forgetfulness is present in these last few verses. There's a twinge of negativity here at the end that should pluck our ears. God's gift is free to anybody who hears it. We have established already that the storehouses of grain are symbolic of that very gift. So now that the people have come to receive that gift because of the famine in the lands, does Joseph and the Pharaoh's kingdom give it away freely? No. It says outright that the storehouses were opened by Joseph and the grain was sold to the Egyptians, the people in the very same household of Egypt, and all the rest of the earth came to Egypt to buy the grain from Joseph. Uh Uh-oh. Again, almost perfect, almost quite nearly there, but there's a twist, even if it's subtle. The gift is free, the bread is for the hungry, it is not for profit, and we must be careful to never let our blessings become capital. We were given these abundant gifts from God free of charge, and we must share those gifts free of charge. There are no exceptions, not even for this wonderful character Joseph. See you all next week. This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network.